You're listening to AshCast, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation podcast. On February 6th, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation hosted a talk titled, How Offshore Wind Came Into Being in Massachusetts, Policy Innovation and Legislative Action. Representative Patricia Haddad, Speaker Pro Tempore of the Massachusetts House of Representatives, spoke about energy diversity policy in Massachusetts. Muriel Royer, Harvard Kennedy School adjunct professor of public policy, moderated. I am extremely excited and very honored to welcome today the Honorable Patricia Haddad, who is a representative um, at the House um, uh, of Representatives of Massachusetts and a speaker pro tempore. Uh, she very graciously accepted our invitation today to come tell us the story of how the uh, offshore wind came into being in Massachusetts. Before she does just that, uh, let me introduce her properly and briefly explain why it's important today that this story be told uh, and told by someone like her. So, a few words of introduction. Uh, Representative Haddad is a Democrat who has been representing the people of Massachusetts in the 5th district of uh, Bristol since 2000. Before that, she was a health and physical education teacher, which is why I suspect her legislative action <laughs> reflects an inclusive concern for all forms of well-being. She has served on various committees, including uh, human services and elder affairs, healthcare, Medicaid, natural resources and agriculture, rules, ethics, and ways and means. Uh, Representative Haddad served two terms as chairwoman of the Joint Committee on Education. And prior to her uh, appointment as speaker pro tempore, uh, which if you don't know is appointed by the Speaker of the House, uh, Robert E. DeLeo, she was assistant majority whip. So to say that she has some legislative and leadership experience is an understatement. And the many assignments that she has undertaken during her tenure uh, on the House reflect her progressive interests. So she was part of different um, endeavors, the Legislative Commission on Public Housing, the Special Task Force on the Economy and Economic Development, the Legislative Commission on Middle-Level Education, uh, and the Council of State Governments Eastern Region Committee on Energy and the Environment. So understandably, she has become an an inspiring figure uh, and been honored by many groups and organizations uh, whose list sounds a bit like, um, I don't know, from a European perspective, I would say a script for the good society and a dive into uh, Massachusetts civil society. She has received too many awards for me to list them all, but some of them are really interesting. No, no, no. So, Women of Achievement Award from the Miss Massachusetts Scholarship Pageant, (laughs) Legislator of the Year Award from the Massachusetts Association of School Committees, Uh, Teacher Leader Award from the Reading Recovery Council of Massachusetts, the Mass Bioed Award from the Massachusetts Bioeducation Association, Public Service Award from the Massachusetts Association, this one is long, of Chapter 766 approved schools. And most recently, she has received an honorary doctorate of public administration from Massachusetts Maritime Academy. Representative Haddad is here today because she has championed the fight for offshore wind in the legislature. 
and he was instrumental in the passing of a law in 2016, uh, a law mandating the purchase of wind power by state utilities, which may mark and will mark the launch of an offshore industry in Massachusetts. This is an important story. First, because as you know, climate change is upon us and the way to mitigate it is to decarbonize our economies. Energy, which represents 35% of our emissions, is crucial. The Paris Agreement on Climate Change, uh, based on the climate science developed by the UN, recommends that decarbonized forms of energy be multiplied by three by 2050. If we want to limit uh, global warming to two degrees Celsius, and ideally move further to a net zero emission target <coughs> by 2050 to basically save the planet. So renewables are definitely part of the equation. And in the USA, despite recent difficulties at the federal level with climate action, the renewable revolution is en marche, to use the French president's expression, um, and mostly at the state level. Thanks to the economic promises of green growth made possible by clean technologies. Um, so the American Wind Energy Association projects that wind could support 20% of US electricity and create up to 500,000 jobs by 2030 about. Um, so this is very exciting. However, this transition is by no means easy and comes at an economic and political cost. It is the destruction of old jobs, the curse, the infamous trade-off of green policy between jobs and protection of the planet, um, which plays out fully these days with the phasing out of the coal industry, which is well underway in the world, in the country, and in Massachusetts. Um, in Massachusetts, it has been symbolized by the decommissioning of two coal-fired plants in your district, uh, Montauk and Brighton Point, uh, which uh, you will certainly talk. You were yourself confronted with this trade-off uh, in Somerset, as you will probably explain, but you've never recoiled and have relentlessly uh, found ways and means to kind of overcome or refute this trade-off, including by going to Europe in learning expeditions where you found innovative ideas to, transport, to transpose here in Massachusetts and lay the ground for a whole new adventure. Today, the press uh, no longer calls you the queen of coal, but the witch of wind. <laughs> the witch of wind. And, uh, wind. and wind energy is no longer uh, perceived as a, as a lobby, but as a rising new industry. And this is an exemplary policy achievement. And I thought we could all learn from you. So thank you again very much for being here today. Please welcome with me Representative Patricia Haddad. Thank you. Thank you. So having been a teacher for 13 years, I, I'm not allowed to sit when I speak with people. So I'll, I move around a lot, and ultimately I will sit down. But um, I feel more comfortable standing. So let me just tell you a little bit about myself. Yes, I, um, I taught for 13 years at the middle school level. And um, some people say that because of that experience of um, dealing with 13 and 14 year old egos, that has helped me in um, taking care of my, <laughs> you're laughing because you've been in a legislature, taking care of my um, 
my colleagues who we have a lot of egos, a lot of egos, but that's fine. That's fine. Um, I'm also married. I have um, two adult children and four grandchildren. And the grandchildren, as you can imagine, are a big part of why um, I've had to evolve in my thinking. And I have been in the legislature. I was elected in 2000 and um, ultimately took office in 2001. And, and I've done a lot of really interesting things. So I've been very, very fortunate in um, all that I've done. But I come from a little town, seven square miles. And in those seven square miles, there were two, not one, but two coal-fired power plants. That, for all your environment, environmentalists in here, if you have food in your mouth, um, I'm going to say something that will probably choke you. <laughs> I tried my darndest to keep those plants alive because those plants represented jobs and it represented an incredible tax base for the town of Somerset. So the town of Somerset has um, services that are rivaled in only in cities. We have full-time police, full-time fire, really good schools, roads. We have um, sewerage. We have good water. And that is because of those two power plants. So it was very hard for me to see them go, but we all have to evolve, we all have to change. And um, probably five years ago, or maybe six now, when the first power plant closed, it was, it was something that sent um, a shockwave through our community, but also sort of whacked me in the head and said, things have to change and you have to pay attention. So fast forward a little bit, and um, I would send to my local, um, selectmen and, and town leaders, all of the uh, various articles that were coming to me because of my interest in, in energy. And I would send them out to them so that they could see that coal was on the decline and that they needed to start to think about this. So again, fast forward, and we learned very abruptly that the Brayton Point power plant would be closing. They were paying nearly $14 million in taxes. So if you're thinking about what that means, that was a huge chunk of a um, 20, maybe a 27 or $28 million budget. And so again, we had to start thinking about what that was going to mean to us, as well as the fact that it was 250 jobs, 250 really good jobs. And so the... Um, the thought was, you know, what are we going to do? How do we make? Let me. I'm sorry. Just tell me to stop waving my arms. I can't. I can't. Do, I can't do it. You can tell me, but I can't do it. So um, we, I particularly, started to look at what's the next thing coming down the road here, and I was um, because I I do represent a small uh, portion of the state, but we still have a very regional. We all work together regionally, and what happens in the region um, very much benefits or hurts everyone in the region. So um, somebody that I don't know if you, or you've heard his name, but Mayor John Mitchell came to see me to talk about um, things that he had heard, things that he had learned. He made a trip over to uh, Germany and learned that 
uh, New Bedford, which is which is an old fishing port in the state of Massachusetts, um, that is you know having its own problems. And so we got together and started talking, and um, he explained to me that about this wind thing. And I was like, well, wind. Several years before, we had had a great deal of difficulty trying to get good regulations for onshore wind, so on land wind. So I was a little skeptical because I said, gee, we can't seem to, we couldn't seem to get consensus around what were good regulations on land-based wind. How in the world are we going to do um, offshore wind? And unfortunately, the one example of offshore wind um, was Cape Wind. And Cape Wind was kicking up some, you know, real issues. And people just didn't like it. So again, I, I'm looking at this as, oh my God, how, I don't get it. You know, so the, so, um, the mayor and, and a number of people spent a good deal of time with me and it, and it started to dawn on me that this was not Cape, what they were asking was not Cape Wind. And while Cape Wind um, really opened the door and opened the eyes of people, they didn't go through a process that made sense to the ordinary person. So they started introducing me to uh, people in other parts of the country who were really working on this offshore wind. Now this is way back in 2013 and 2014. At the time, um, the chair of the telecommunications, energy, and utility um, committee and I had formed this bond because he was from Salem and they had a coal plant. So we were bonded over, over um, our dilemma over coal going away. And it's, it's where I got the you know queen of coal because I was just desperately trying to keep this afloat. So he said to me, you better watch this bill that's coming out. This bill is talking about hydroelectric power. And if we look only to hydroelectric power, because I had been talking to him about, I should have said that, I've been talking to him about offshore wind. He said, if we go only with hydroelectric power, you can kiss offshore wind goodbye. Because we know how it is in the in the legislature. When you do a big bill, it becomes been there, done that, got the t-shirt, and we don't look at it again for five years. And it was very, very uh, plain to me that if we allowed this opportunity for offshore wind to go by, we would not, we would be behind the eight, eight ball and nothing was going to happen for us. So unfortunately, it became a... Um, I was at loggerheads with the administration because they were not willing to talk to me about what the opportunities and the uh, you know, possibilities were of offshore wind. And um, it's, it's interesting to me that it, it, we were at loggerheads because that previous administration was Democratic Democrats as I was. But somehow we just couldn't make I couldn't make that happen. So unfortunately, I used a um, parliamentary procedure to stop that bill because I knew if I let that bill go through that we would not engage in the conversation that we needed to engage in. So 
um, again, fast forward, that bill didn't make it out of, um, out of the House or the Senate. Um, but having been, I, oh, I didn't say that I was, um, I'm a Catholic schoolgirl and lots of Catholic guilt. And so when I stopped this bill from happening, I also said to myself, well, you've now done something that the nuns have told you is a very bad thing, and now you've got to fix it. <laughs> so I spent the entire, my entire summer putting together a plan and a process for how I was going to fix this bad behavior that I had. So I started contacting everybody and anybody who would speak with me about renewable energy, not just wind, but I had people, uh, I wanted to hear the real story behind solar because it was something that I didn't know a lot about. So I, um, I started in a process where I sent invitations out to every part of the industry from um, people who were, who were studying tidal energy to thermo, um, thermodynamic, uh, thermo, what is it, thermo, in, yeah, geothermal. geothermal, thank you. My, by the way, my friends complete my sentences, <laughs> so thank you so much. Um, so geothermal, we, um, you know, we, we looked at onshore wind, and I really got a lot of people to come to talk to me about offshore wind. And those people were not just from Massachusetts, they were from all over the country. I had the absolute privilege of meeting with um, Abby Hopper, who at the time was the director of the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management nationally, and um, people from the University of Delaware. And so um, two days a week for four hours a day, I had people come to the little library in Somerset and just completely infuse me with everything that they knew. So. I went from, you know, I was talking today about graduate degrees. I get a graduate degree probably once a month because of all the good, good um, knowledge that people share with me. So we sp I sent out a questionnaire to all these people who said they would come and meet. And it was, please send me a brief that no more than three pages that tells me what you think I should know about your subject matter. So they came, they, brought, they sent their briefs in advance, and then they came and sat with me for two hours, each of these, these groups, and we met with somewhere in excess of 150 people. And those people, as I said, infused me with some amazing knowledge. And it became clearer and clearer that solo was on its way and didn't need my help, that title still had some work to be done, but that offshore wind was the place that the opportunities seemed boundless, absolutely endless. So from that brief and the meetings, they were then asked to um, answer 10 questions. And also there was a spot at the bottom for anything that you think I didn't ask that I should have asked. So as this starts to go on, we started thinking, we're going to save all of this, because this is really important information. So as the summer went, uh, went on, we, started, we were collecting um, 
PowerPoints and I mean, you can't even imagine how great it was to have people with uh, tremendous amounts of knowledge come and share it. So then came the fall and into the, um, the early winter where I had to start thinking about what was the bill going to be that I was going to put forward. And so um, I got my staff, a couple of attorneys, and said, this is where I want to go. This is what I want to do. And this is what I want to say to change policy in the state of Massachusetts. So um, the bill got filed in what we call a timely manner. There's, a, there's all kinds of dates that we have to meet. And when a bill is filed timely, it goes through the process much more smoothly. So again, now fast forward, we have a new administration. And the new administration, um, they also were very interested in hydroelectric. But it was very different. The, um, what I met with in this new administration was much more, tell us about what you're thinking and why you're thinking that. So I, um, I had prepared, just to show people that I just didn't, you know, pun intended, pull this out of the air, what I had done and every piece of information that I had gathered, where we thought it was going to be maybe a, you know, a booklet, turned into three, three-inch, three ring binders, which became the joke because I would go into meetings with a copy and say, here you go. And so the new Secretary of Energy and the Environment, his eyes were like this big when I presented him with what I had done on my summer vacation. I did the same thing with the new Chairman of Energy and the Environment. I did the same thing with the Senate Chair of Energy and the Environment. I did the same thing with the Speaker's Office and the uh, chairman of Ways and Means, because all of these people had to be convinced that this was good policy. And this was something that was not, you know, okay, well, let's, let's talk about this. I then, we have 200 people in the legislature, so you have to get the majority of those 200 people to agree with you. And while people say, oh, you know, the speaker points his finger or the Senate president points their finger and that's where everybody votes, that's not the case. I'm going to tell you right now, that is not how it works. You, as a person who is trying to change policy and change something, you have to sell it. You have to talk about why it's good for the entire state, not just your little corner of the universe, but why it's going to be good policy. So to that end, the Danish government kindly offered to take some of us over to Denmark. Hmm. Now, I was, I was into the, I was on it. I, you didn't have to prove it to me. But the opportunity to go and see it in, in real life was amazing. So then you decide, well, who have I got to take with me to make them want to, you know, want to do this? And so I asked the majority leader to come along. I asked a rep from the middle of the state where they do precision manufacturing, because I'm thinking, hmm, we got to get him to realize this is going to be good for the central part of the state. I took with me a um, member from the Cape delegation so that she could be convinced that this was not Cape Wind. This was something very different. And then I brought, um, who am I leaving out? Uh, it'll, it'll come to me. But the, but the point is that 
I had to strategically, oh, I brought the chairman of the Committee on Energy and um, Environment, I mean Energy and uh, Utilities, because you have to strategically sell your perspective to your colleagues if you want to make really big change, because it is a democracy, and we are, it's all about getting consensus around an issue. Um, it, it was a great trip. It was grueling because it was early in the morning to late at night and meeting with companies and, and meeting with people. But it became very clear that this was going to be an amazing opportunity if I could get my colleagues to agree. So as I said, each uh, when you file a bill, it has a hearing. Every bill gets a hearing. And um, at the hearing, we had a small panel, and it was the mayor, the mayor of the city of New Bedford, Abby Hopper, the director of BOEM, Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, um, uh, a woman that I had worked with, with in the University of Delaware, and myself. And we talked about why this was good for the state of Massachusetts. And so um, that was a little bit of a coup, getting a national, very, um, you know, very well-known person to come, and bringing along somebody from outside of my district, who, for whom, you know, I was sort of doing this because it's a regional. It's it's definitely a regional thing. So again, fast forward, fast forward, and um, the committee now digs in and starts to work on this bill. The governor and the administration were um, part of the discussions because obviously they, whatever policy we decide we're going to put out there, they have to administer and they have to make it happen. So I have to say that the, the administration was incredible working with us. Asked very hard questions because it's not just about, oh yeah, what a great idea, Haddad, let's do that. Oh no. You have to make your position as firm as you can possibly make it. You have to have the answers, and it can't be fluffy. And so, you know, the joke is, I always joke around that, um, you know, I don't, if it's not on a scoreboard, I don't get it because it's because um, of being a phys ed person. But that's only a joke, believe me, because you have to be very versed in what you are trying to do. Of course, there lots of people helped me. I'm not going to say that this was all me. I can't even tell you how many brains I used to um, bolster my knowledge and to make sure I had the right talking points. We had a, a campaign to go to um, editorial boards to sell this policy. It was, um, it was just a two-year-long campaign to make sure that people understood where we were going and what we were doing. Um, the last place I got to visit was the UK. And they, um, it, it's, I think the UK was really what said to me, you have got to do this. You've got to make this happen. They took us to two old cities, old towns in the UK, Hull and Grimsby. Very much like New Bedford, very much like Somerset, dying on the vine because they were fishing communities and there was nothing for them. And so this just bolstered my need to make people understand that we could change the face of the South Coast. So 
the South Coast, we identify ourselves as Fall River and New Bedford and all the cities and towns in between. Um, the, um, we have higher unemployment than any place in the rest of the state. We have um, opioid challenges higher than other places in the state. So this is not just about changing a policy for the state of Massachusetts, which is very, very important, but it's also about what it's going to do for the South Coast. And what we hope it's going to do, and, and what we are doing now, because I think you know that the RFP is out. We have three developers looking at being the first to um, bring, bring utility-scale wind, because there's a little project off of Rhode Island. But to bring utility-scale wind to the Commonwealth, it doesn't just mean that we're going to put some you know, windmills out there, and, and that's the end of it. It means changing what's the dynamic of what's going on down in my area. It means re, um, redeveloping pieces of land, such as Brayton Point, which is 300 acres, that um, we're now looking to try very hard to entice uh, companies and people who will become part of the uh, process of building these windmills. So we're looking for supply chain companies. And we're looking for um, the opportunity to make Massachusetts the center as other uh, states around us realize that this is, this is the way of the future. So that's a, that's a big overview. And I'm interested in what specific questions that you, um, you're interested in. Oh, you know, I don't know if the picture was, oh yeah, the picture. <laughs> yeah. Um, one of the people that helped me greatly, Matt Morrissey, um, helped me greatly with this process of keeping the three developers together so that they, they were not, until just recently, they were not competitors. They were an industry trying to start themselves here in Massachusetts. So it was a, it was a really great thing. Um, so that's the day that the, the bill ultimately got signed. And I'll just make one more um, silly remark because as I was doing this, people really thought I was crazy. Really, really thought I was crazy. Offshore wind, way offshore, what are you talking about? You're nuts. And a few people stood by me. I think nine or 10 people signed on to the bill because they were a little worried about whether I, I was taking them down some, uh, some road. And more than once, the speaker said to me, Haddad, don't embarrass me. Um, so it was very, very funny that when it came time to sign the bill, there were literally hundreds of people there who took credit for it. But that's OK. That's OK. And as we're walking down, we're walking down the stairs, the, uh, the, the governor said to me, well, failure is an orphan, but success has many parents. <laughs> and I said, yes, sir, Your, uh, Your Excellency, you're absolutely right. And, um, and he, was, he was great because he, you know, he and his administration worked very closely to actually make this happen because they realized that this could be huge, huge, and should be huge for Massachusetts. So what do you want to know? What do you want to know specifics or... or well, well, first of all, I want to thank you very much for this very lively uh, 
a very lively talk that shows us, and this is what I tell my students, it's not all about science, technology, it's very much about politics, about democracy. Uh -huh. You found the right way to talk, you haggled, you sold your project. This Nagged. is about Nag would be better. Exactly. <laughs> and the fact that you are a woman as well certainly, oh. you know, has a lot to do with this. So I exactly. really, what I does really she want to hail what you've done and give you as an example to all the people here, Thank women you. and young men, the young generation. I also appreciate that you mentioned that because this is something that we easily and selfishly forget, but it's something that is really upon the future generations. So um, I will open the floor, you know, right away. Um, my, you know, I, I just had questions if nobody has any, but okay. I don't doubt I saw, you have questions. I a hand. <laughs> so I will give the priority to, to our students. Please introduce yourself when you ask the question. Thank you, Amy. Is this working? Right. Hi, I'm Amy Jo. Um, I'm a master's in public policy student here and also in uh, the green policy and politics class. Thank you so much for being here and sharing such a fascinating uh, achievement. Thank My you. question for you is about um, how to communicate and I guess overcome the barrier that people's eyes sort of gloss over when you start talking about technical matters. And yeah. this is one of the largest problems about climate change and tackling you know, the transition to renewable energy. So how did you deal with that type of opposition and communicate uh, effectively the need for this type of progress? So again, the environmentalists aren't going to like this answer. I didn't make it about the environment. I made it about the jobs. I made it about changing the face of the South Coast. And I made it about um, stabilizing uh, energy costs. So sometimes the big important policy has to be subjugated to the, as you said, not eyes, you know, the, the, the process that eyes glaze over, but taking it down to what it means for the individual you're speaking with. So as I said, I, I brought with me um, one of the reps from the central part of the state because he didn't care about offshore wind. What he cared about was that we could possibly entice a business to come who would need his precision manufacturing skills that exist in the central part of the, the state. So it's, it's sometimes taking it completely out of what your end game is and putting it into what personally matters to somebody. Another question? Yes, Monia. Yeah. Please don't forget to introduce yourself. Okay. Hi, Monia uh, Mostefawi. I'm a PhD student um, at Harvard Law School. Uh, thank you very much for uh, your pleasure. enlightening presentation. It's great to see people like you, for young ladies like us. Huh? Um, I have two questions, please. Sure. What triggered your, your change? You mentioned that during the summer you decided to have a redemption moment. Mm. but. Did something really triggered that that change? And just another question: As a woman, did you find it um, particularly challenging to uh, to share your views because you're a woman? Sure. Thanks. So, so the first one was knowing that the the second power plant was going to close, and knowing that ultimately I have to bring different businesses to my community, and um, um, I, yeah, I guess that was. That was it, um, knowing that $13, 14000000 dollars was going to be taken out, out of our economy and need to be replaced. Um, so I don't, I don't want to insult any of the men here, 
so please take this with a grain of salt. Um, it is um, still not easy to be a woman in my position. I'm very often the only woman in the room at times. And yeah, I mean, there were people that I know were snickering behind my back. What does she know? And why does she think that this should be her thing? You know, why aren't you letting so-and-so? Why, why didn't so-and-so file this? And I said, because I did the work and I'm going to file it. And, and very often, um, I think you have to, sh as a woman, I very often work harder than the men to get to the same place. And, um, and I, um, we happen to have a very, very good Speaker of the House who does not look at gender. But that being said, there are men who prefer to think of, prefer if things were the way they used to be. And prefer, would prefer that I just sort of stepped aside and was quiet. But I, um, I forgot to tell you that I grew up with um, three brothers who, and I had no sisters, and um, they made it their business to uh, torment me and horrify me at all times. So I grew stronger from that. I have always worked in fields with men. I was a coach for, um, for gymnastics for several years. There were no women coaches. It was only men coaches because they were stronger than I was, or so they thought. Um, and in my husband's business, when I worked with my husband, it was all men. And I would work with men. So, um, and you know, and I do have to give some perks to the nuns, because I went to an all-girls Catholic school, and they told me that I could be or do anything I wanted to do, as long as I did whatever the parish priest told me to do, of course. But, um, but they instilled in me, um, you know, a certain amount of, don't tell me what I can't do, because I'm going to do it. And so what happens when people tell me that I can't do things, it just makes me a little crazy. Um, so... Yeah, I, you know, and we still do, we still face a lot of, of that uh, sexism, but you just have to, like, plow through it and, and, and just keep going. And, can't, and, and it's hard sometimes, but you can't let it bother you. Yeah, and you did it. <laughs> then I did it. Right. Thank and you. as I said, a lot of people, and oh, some of them happened to be men, wanted to take credit. And I said, fine, you take the credit, but I know what I did. I know I did the work, so. Sometimes you just have to subjugate your ego to get what you need done. And, and very often, and that's fine too, I don't care. Because I look at myself in the mirror and I don't have to uh, look at other people in the mirror. Well, thank you very much for this. I got a little bit on my soapbox, I'm so sorry. I'll stand down now. Hi. Hi. Marty, Marty used to work here. There was an award well, uh, named after her really the for point. women in politics. <laughs> but Marty, thank you. you. Anyway, I I'm asking as a citizen, um, um, thanks, Muriel, um, about how you see the kind of your admirable effort fitting into the broader kind of energy policy of Massachusetts. I know there's a bill, for instance, that I think Marjorie Decker um, from Cambridge and an, another person is proposing for 100% clean energy right. in Massachusetts. I'm really struck and admiring of your practicality. I mean, it has to matter about jobs and it really 
And I'm wondering if you feel like there's, um, if that's too general or too broad, or how do you, how do you see your efforts and strategy um, feeding into the state's larger, you know, efforts that are going on now? Um, I think that for some people, you're right. Some things are just too broad, and you really have to bring it down to, to personal. Um, there's a lot of really good bills filed this session. To um, I have one to raise the RPS. There's a few out there to raise the RPS. Um, you have to file the broad things, and you have to have the very high goals. But you also have to remember that the reality is that things come incrementally and can't get discouraged. So to have the really broad goals out there um, is an absolute necessity. So if she hadn't filed that bill, there would be nothing to aspire to. But then you have to spoon feed the rest of the people and make them understand that this is the next increment we can go to. So, so that's kind of where we are now. What's the next increment? Um, you know, RPS has to be raised. It absolutely has to be raised. And that's renewable portfolio standards in order for us to continue to work towards 100% renewable energy. Um, so it's, it's becomes a, a balancing act. Never let go of the big goal. Keep your, you know, keep your eyes on the big prize. But always remember that you've got to appreciate the, the incremental. And, uh, you know, I've been very honored by the attention that I've gotten. And I'm hope, I hope that I use that attention to highlight what else is available. So, for instance, you know, Representative Decker's um, bill. It's a really good bill. Are we ready to do the whole thing? No. But we have to make sure that what we do this session moves us a giant step further in the process while we keep our eye on the, you know, the ultimate prize of being able to go completely renewable. So it's, and, and you know, every time somebody gives me the opportunity, I tell them, we have a ton of really smart women. But as women, we have one big thing that we don't do well, and that is toot our own horn. And so very often you will see women coming together to make things happen and not get the credit. I'm going to tell you, you remember the, the bill that Massachusetts, I mean the uh, law that Massachusetts passed prior to the Obama or in the beginning of the Obama administration, but where we did amazing work around health care, a woman who never got the credit that she should have gotten, never got the credit. And, um, and to this day, when I see her, I say, Pat, you know, her name is Pat too. Um, you know, what a great job you did, she is. That was a time when they didn't want my name, but I was happy, happy to do the work in order for us to get where we needed to get. And that happens many, many times that, that women decide that the goal is more important than, than your name. So there's, a, there's three or four men that you always hear about that supposedly got this done. She did all the work, she did all the writing, and she did all the research, she and her staff. So go Pat. Joe, go Pat. Go Pat. Exactly. <laughs> right. So um, 
Any other questions? Yes, sir. Can you introduce yourself? Hi, uh, Representative Haddad. What will what will the Can you rate? Introduce yourself, please. Before. Can you introduce yourself? Oh, uh, my name is Christopher Lucy. So, uh, what will the rate structure look like for commercial and and uh, residential users if we were 100% renewable? How far off is that in the future? Is there yeah. any downside to that, or environmentally, or you know, I, from one source? Um, from what I'm here, you know, I'm more familiar with what's going on with wind than I am for the the bigger um, the process and how it's going to be actually teased out in the end. The um, the both of the large, all of the uh, Eversource uh, grid. Unicare, uh, Uni, Uni, whatever they are. Um, they are all part of this process. And it was written in, two things were written into the, um, the legislation that I thought were very important. One, that each successive bid in offshore wind must be, shall be, those are important words in legislation, um, less than the previous. So that was, first of all, to get people to say that they would bring down prices instead of bringing them up was unheard of. The second was that um, the, pro the final decision is going to be made by um, an independent outside source. And that independent outside source is um, their only job is to make sure that this is going to be good for consumers. So I don't know what that means going forward, and I, I'm not sure how soon we get to 100% renewables or what it will cost. But um, when you take the aggregate number, because I'm hearing that all three developers of the wind came in at um, uh, either very low double digits, like 10 or 11 cents a, a kilowatt hour, or below. Sing, in single digits. That is amazing because that's what gas costs. That is, and, and it's probably going to be on par with what the um, hydro numbers are coming in. So when you take that over the aggregate, we should not see a big blip. At least we're hoping, because that's another thing. You know, ultimately we have to sell this to um, the electorate. And oops, I'm old. <laughs> Um, so ultimately, we have to sell this to the electorate, and they every month open up that bill. I cannot tell you how my husband yells at me. <laughs> what is this delivery charge? Why am I paying only five cents for this and five, you know, fifty dollars for this? And I, honey, you know, I don't do the bills. <laughs> I don't even pay our own bills. I say, here's my money. Here, do whatever you need to do with it. Um, oh my God, I just—is that bad that I that I admit that I um, that I let my husband do stuff like that? Anyway, we'll we'll talk about that another time, but um, that's who ultimately is going to pay the price here, and it may be easy if you're in one of the affluent communities of Massachusetts to understand how important it is to get to 100% renewables. But where I come from, as I said, we still have high unemployment. We still have people who are living paycheck to paycheck, unless I unless we are able to to show them that this is not just about and back again to my my point of it it can't be 
about the big picture because the big picture that so many of us know are important is not important when you're trying to pay your bills. So I would tell people as they would come to see me, I believe in green, but I don't believe in green at any cost because we have too many people in this state who are still very poor. And we've got to find better ways to help them become part of the green revolution um, and not have that green revolution on their backs. So that's, um, that's the, I guess that's the next challenge to make sure that people feel that um, they can buy into this because of the jobs, because it may mean a job for them personally, and it doesn't hurt them in their pocketbook, because um, that's a really hard one. It's a really hard one. You've been listening to AshCast, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovations podcast. If you'd like to learn more, please visit ash.harvard.edu or follow the Ash Center on social media at Harvard Ash.